Um, it's good to see you all this morning. Just a quick note, that buzzing that we just heard should be the last buzzing that I hear this morning. So that's your friendly reminders, public service announcement. Uh, as as uh, you've already seen on the screen here, we're starting a new series here this morning into the book of James called Give It to Me Straight. And as Ross alluded to, the first topic that James covers in his book is the topic of trials. Now, uh, for some of us, for many of us actually, uh, this is going to feel like a pretty relevant trial for us this week. Uh, as we, if you have eyes for what's going on in the global world, many of us are just starting to hear news of what's coming out of Turkey and Syria, some of the consequence of, I think it's now over 30,000 people who were killed in that tragedy, and the millions more that are being affected by that. Um, I received an email from Tony this morning from our denomination that we've got uh, people uh, planning our crisis response to move into that area. There's just tragic news that continues to come out um, as people get on the ground and see all of the devastation that's happened there. Uh, we also just had, in the same kind of thinking, a crisis response team return from Florida, helping them recover from the storms that hit them a few months ago. Uh, and as I think closer to home, for those of you who are in the Warwick community this past week, um, it, so it's a, uh, I got tissues with me this morning because we're talking about trials. It can be hard. Uh, a student passed away, uh, one of my um, daughter's classmates. So um, I hang out with Tony too much. Uh, it's, it's, it's a tough week. Thank you. Your laughter is going to be what gets me through this. And then, if, and then many of you are, um, are grieving the loss of a longtime member, Chris Gaiman, um, who passed away earlier this week as well. So as we get started here, what I would just ask, maybe we'll join together and pray over these different situations. And I know many of you are bringing types of grief of loss of loved ones. Probably too many for me to list up here. But why don't we just pray to the sovereign God who, who cares so much about all of the individuals in each of these circumstances that he sent his son to die in order to take away the sting of death, which is sin. Would you pray with me? Uh, Heavenly Father, would your Holy Spirit be at work in this building this morning as we look at what your truth has to say to us about trials and pain and affliction? And we lift up all of these different circumstances, a war-torn world where there's just catastrophic devastation beyond what our minds can grasp. And yet we know that you are sovereign over these things. And so we just pray that you would give us eyes to see and faith to trust that you are in control of all things. Would you, would you work through your church to bring the, the real aid that's needed in regions like Turkey and Syria, where they just need food and water. And Lord, we pray also that the, the light of your gospel that brings eternal life would also be shining brightly around the world and be a, a comfort to those who are, who are among us in our congregation now who are grieving various loss. We give these things to you, knowing that you have the power to save. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, so we're going to be jumping into our new series in the book of James. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to James chapter 1. We're going to be starting in verse 1 here in just a minute. But before we dive in, because it's a new book for us, I kind of want to set the stage for what it is we're about to jump into. So just to kind of keep it easy for us to start out, this, is, uh, this book entitled James is called James because it's written by a guy named James. All right? Now, our church fathers were, were, were great. They were awesome guys. They weren't very creative, though. So books like this, we get a title, James, because it's written by James. Now, maybe a deeper question for us to answer is, which James wrote this? Because kind of like our church, in the New Testament church, there were a lot of guys named James. All right? I went through our directory, and I counted 40 different people named James, Jimmy, or Jim. All right, so we have a similar type of predicament when we open up uh, the book of James. There's a lot of good options to choose from. We're going to get into his story a lot more. We're, we're in this series for 20 weeks. So I'm just going to give you what you need to know this morning, which is that this is James, who is the, the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus. And his story is one of remarkable transformation. We're going to look at that more in the week, weeks ahead. But by the time we get into this letter, he had become one of the primary leaders in the early church. He is up there with guys like John, 
and Peter and Paul, an elder in the church of Jerusalem, where the, where the church starts, right? It starts in Jerusalem and spreads out from there. And so he's, he's writing to us as one of these leaders in the early church. Now, we also have to ask ourselves, so how early is early? Well, most church historians believe that this letter was penned probably sometime between 44 and 49 A.D., so this is very early if you know your church history, right? Jesus from maybe around 0 to 33 AD. So we're talking 10 to 15 years after the earthly ministry of Jesus. And actually, m- many believe that this letter that we're about to jump into may be one of the first books of the New Testament that was written. That's how early this is. And we're going to see when we open up and read verse 1 that he addresses this early church as the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. It's a very strange, your version might say 12 tribes of the dispersion or something like that. It's a very strange title for the church. But in the context of where we're at, how early we are, this actually makes a lot of sense. Because at this point in church history, the church is primarily Jewish. So that 12 tribes brings to mind, right? It's primarily Jewish. Guys like Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, is likely just getting ready to set out for his first missionary journey. So while there are Gentiles in the church very early on, most of the people who make up the church at this point in time are Jewish. And so he says, written to the, the 12 tribes scattered, all right? And this word scattered for the Jewish convert, one who is familiar with the history of God's people, has a lot of meaning associated with it. It would bring to mind the many times throughout um, the history of Israel where they were scattered for various reasons among the nations. But what they would know about their history is that they weren't just scattered by chance, but they were being sent by God in order to fulfill the promise that he made to Abraham that his descendants would be a blessing to the nations. And so we think of stories like Joseph or uh, Esther or Daniel, and we think of the impact that they had among the nations, being a blessing to the nations even under difficult circumstances. And this is what comes to mind when they hear this word scattered which would be an encouragement for the early church. Because we read in places like Acts 7 and Acts 8 and Acts 11 that early on as this church is just beginning to grow and thrive in Jerusalem, that Stephen, the deacon Stephen, gives this amazing presentation of the gospel. And in reaction to that, the church comes under heavy persecution and they are scattered throughout the region. You see, it's a a good chance that James was an elder over one of the fastest shrinking churches in church history, right? Not something as an elder that I would necessarily want on my resume, all right? Fastest shrinking church, that's great. Um, But you know what? Here we preach the gospel, and sometimes that might make a church shrink, and that's okay. God has purposes for that. So this is where we find ourselves as we step into this letter. Twelve tribes scattered among the nations, designation for the early church. So realizing that circumstance, we just should remind ourselves as we step in that even though they can be encouraged by what God is doing through this, it's not easy. Which may be why the first topic that James deals with is trials. So if you would, turn with me to James chapter 1. We're going to be starting here in verse 1, reading through verse 4. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So now as we get into James, 
we find that he speaks uh, very concisely. So we kind of have to be careful as we walk through what he's communicating so that we don't draw the wrong conclusions from it. So we're going to have, I think I saw the text up there, we're going to have on the screen. And I'm going to go back. They didn't let me bring an overhead projector up here, right? So I brought a, uh, a laser pointer with me. Um, I'm a millennial, but hey, this, this works. And I realize our youth is on uh, winter break. So, so that overhead joke, it works for this, uh, this audience. They'd be like, what's he saying? All right. So really want to start here is, as we walk through and just see what James is saying. Starting here with consider it pure joy. Okay. This is where verse two is. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now, this is a command, right? Consider it pure joy. And if we would just stop at the comma, we might draw the wrong conclusions of what he's trying to say. We may think that James is saying that the pain of your trials you should consider pure joy, as if it's just the power of positive thinking. But we don't stop. We go on. The thought goes much deeper than that. This is what that word because does, right? It tells you that the thought is continuing because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, so what he's saying here is that your, your trial or your circumstances, although it may be hard, there are things that it's producing down the road. So don't, don't lose sight of what God's trying to do through your trial. In your trial, one thing it's doing is in you, it's producing perseverance. And we're going to talk about what that means in a second. But just to continue on here, so verse 4, let perseverance finish its work. Another command, let perseverance finish its work knowing that these are not one-time decisions, but there is ongoing engagement in our hearts and our minds through trials. And then this so that, sort of like because, this so that is he's leading us into the, the, the final motivation, what is beneath this entire section, which is that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. So that's where we're headed. We're talking about pain now, for something that's being produced in the future. Now, this is going to sound strange to us at first because we live in a time and a culture that values the now much more than the future. And we as Christians are as susceptible to this as anybody. Right? Often, we regularly enjoy the pleasures of distractions or entertainments or things that engage us rather than the hard work of pouring into our kids or our grandkids, discipling our families so that they might bear fruit more in the future. Or in the now, we enjoy the fruits of, of wealth or, or a routine rather than sacrificially giving of those things for uh, future purposes in the kingdom, right? These are things that we all struggle with. These are things that I struggle with. And what James is saying is you need to be looking further out. That's going to be a recurring theme as we work through the text. And it's important to note this up front. Because if, if you or I, if we're living just for the now, then everything we're about to look at isn't really going to make much sense. Because a lot of that joy, in order to consider it joy, is going to come from looking ahead into the future. So just to summarize verse 2 through 4 a little bit more succinctly, if you want to take notes, this is, or if you're taking notes, this is a great thing to kind of jot down. This is my paraphrase of verse 2 through 4. Hopefully you find it helpful. Uh, it's to take joy in the God-glorifying maturity that trials produce. All right, take joy in the God-glorifying maturity that trials produce. So what kind of trials? I mean, James says trials of all kinds, so I guess we'll just start there. He probably, he probably means trials of all different kinds. In his life, it took many different forms. In his congregation, we know they experienced sickness. They experienced death, even of their leaders. We know that later on they experienced divisions within the church and pressures from outside of the church that he would have had to walk through. In the beginning, we prayed over types of trials that some of us are walking through this week. The trial of, of grief, loss of a loved one, or when tragedy strikes. 
You know, trials can come at other times. They can come at different stages of life, right? Trials can come when we move out from our parents' house. Trials can come when we move back into our parents' house. <laughs> trials can come through uh, starting a new job, retiring from a lifelong career and trying to wrestle with the dynamics of what that looks like post this thing that was such a big part of your life for so long. I was reminded at our elder meeting this uh, past week, as some of us were sharing about the trials that, that we bear, some of the greatest weight and trial for some of us is the knowledge of knowing that someone who we love is walking away from the Lord. In Romans 9, Paul calls this weight unceasing anguish. Trials of many kinds. So what trials are you facing? In order to hear God's encouragements to us from James this morning, I'm just going to take a moment and let you reflect. Honestly, before the Lord, what trials are you walking through today? So we're going to be looking at three encouragements. Three encouragements from James for the believer who's in trials. The first encouragement is that they are essentially Christian, meaning that if you're walking a difficult road right now, that you're not an outlier. This is always, since the time of James, trials, affliction, adversity have always been God's hand at work in his people. He is trying to do something through your trials. The second encouragement is that in your trials, you can be externally powered, right? Externally powered. In other words, perseverance is not grit. But what God is doing in trials often is trying to teach us to depend more on him and less on ourselves. And then finally, that the fruit of trials is eternally valuable. That it's worth it. And look, I know from experience that the deceiver is going to try and convince you that the road that you're on is not worth it. And so I pray that through the Holy Spirit you would see this morning that it is. Those are going to be our three encouragements. So starting with the first, that this is essentially Christian. Picking back up here in verse 2. It says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So what happens when a runner runs? First service, I had a guy like, I never ran, so I don't know, right? Just kind of shouted it out. Now, when a runner runs, I'll just let you know in case it's been a few years, your cardiovascular system is strengthened in order to run further. So by running, we get better at running. And that's essentially what it's saying here. In the same way, faith when it's tested, is trained to endure, to be strengthened, to, to go further. In other words, perseverance can simply be viewed as an enduring faith or a faith that has been trained to endure further. But I think we have to pause here and just ask ourselves, do we really know what faith is? Right? How would you describe it? Our, uh, our ladies in Women's Bible Fellowship this past week asked themselves this very same question and had some teaching on it on Thursday. And it's an important question for us to answer as well because faith is one of the primary themes that we're going to find as we work through the book of James together. Now, hopefully, as you ask yourself this question, some verses maybe come to mind. It's like, I know I've been saved by grace through faith. That I know that faith is a gift. I know that it's an assurance. I know from this passage now that it can be tested. But what exactly is it? What makes up faith? I'm going to show you uh, something that has been helpful for me over the years to help us walk through this question and get a deeper understanding of what faith is. We'll call this the uh, faith triangle. Uh, again, creativity, not maybe one of the strong points for church leaders here, but that's okay. It'll be up on the screen. And you'll see at the bottom of the triangle here that faith begins with knowledge. This is probably the most common sense of the three things that are part of this triangle. 
It finds its roots in places like Romans 10, 17, that says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of the Lord. In other words, you can't have faith in something that you don't know about, right? That you're totally ignorant of. It's just, it's not possible to have faith in something that you don't understand or don't see or have no knowledge of. And what James is saying then is that trials refine our knowledge. Trials refine our knowledge. How many of you have ever had the experience of walking into a quiz or a test thinking that you had the subject matter mastered and then you just totally bomb it, right? Like that was me in high school English. That's why I did engineering uh, later in life. Like I just knew I have to avoid that particular scenario. But what, what is that doing? It's pointing out an area that you thought you had knowledge of but exposed your misunderstandings. That's what trials do for us. So what trials would do is take some knowledge that God is good, like God is good, and then put it in the context of a difficult workplace or a difficult family dynamic and give you opportunity to see, do I really understand exactly what it is that God is good? But knowledge alone is not faith, right? I have knowledge of Buddha. It doesn't make me a Buddhist, Right? There's more that builds on top of knowledge. So the second component of faith here is belief. Is belief. Belief says of knowledge that that's true. So I believe that Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. Something I believe in, right? But um, belief, belief alone doesn't totally comprise faith, but what it does, it says uh, that I do think that that knowledge is true. Now what trials do then is they put that belief to the test. Do you, do you hold on to that thing when affliction comes? Or are you quick to abandon it and turn somewhere else? Belief alone is still not enough for faith. And look at me here for a second. This is important. From the time of James until now, one of the greatest, greatest tragedies in the church is that there have been people who believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and yet make it to the heavenly gates only to hear, I never knew you. How is that possible? In a few weeks, we're going to read from James chapter 2, verse 19, which says, even the demons believe that God is one. A little call to the Shema there. Even the demons believe that God is one. Um, um, I'm sorry. It says, you believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. All right? So this idea that, that we can believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but that makes, does not make us any different than the demons. Because faith requires one more thing. Trust. You see, we don't just confess Jesus. We confess Jesus as Lord. We don't just believe him. We receive him. Maybe to illustrate this a little more clearly. My, uh, my daughter, Ella... I, I tell her all the time that I love her, right? She's eight years old. I, th I think she knows that I love her. I think if you would ask her, does your dad love you? She would say, yes, my dad loves me. Now, in a few years, I don't think this imagery will be quite as uh, strong, all right, when she gets in those teenage years. But as of right now, if you would ask my daughter Ella, does your dad love you? She would say, yes, I, I believe that he loves me. But what makes her faith in my love complete is when at 2 a.m., when she's been sick or she's had a, a nightmare, she comes out of her room, she seeks me out at my bedside and wakes me up not expecting wrath, which, by the way, if any of y'all wake me up at 2 a.m., I'm not making the same promise. But for my daughter, 
for my daughter, when she wakes me up at 2 a.m., she comes not expecting wrath, but expecting my comfort. She entrusts herself to me. And that is what makes faith complete. It's not just knowledge. It's not just belief. But it's an entrusting of ourselves, a placing of our faith in God. That's what we mean when we say faith. And this is why trials are so essentially Christian. Because without trials, there would be no opportunity for us to refine our knowledge. To sort out where we have lack of belief. And they also provide for us opportunity to trust. To have our faith be strengthened. But it's hard. Trials are hard. Trials are very painful. Some of you have been walking a road of trial that may not end in this lifetime. So when we read these five verses in verse four, which say, let perseverance finish its work, our heart immediately responds with, I can't. And we would be right. You know, one of, the, one of the biggest temptations that we face as believers when we're in a painful season is to turn to other things in order to try and dull the pain of our trials. I deal with this regularly. We read, let perseverance finish its work, and yet the, the pain is too hard, so we turn to things like leisure or achievement or projects, or food, or drink, or screens, or other distractions in order to try and ease the pain, hoping that maybe tomorrow the pain will pass. Maybe tomorrow our circumstances will change so that I don't have to feel this. And what James is saying is that doing that is like um, putting disinfectant on a wound. Instead of letting the disinfectant do its work, you're washing it off. You're supposed to let perseverance finish its work. And James isn't telling us then that we need to go seek out suffering. We don't need to go seek out pain because we don't know what we need. Only God knows what he needs. He is sovereign over these situations. But what we're supposed to do is to let perseverance finish its work. James is saying don't waste the trial. In the, hands of, in the hands of God, the trial that you're walking through is a tool to sanctify us and transform us into the likeness of Christ. But man, it can hurt. Especially if you decide today to stop turning to some of those other things that I listed, the things that dull the pain, there's a good chance you're going to feel your pain more deeply. And I want you to know that as I talk through this, I've been there. I've been there this week. Lots of tears in our household this week. One of the most difficult times of trial for me came in my early 20s. I was a sophomore in college, and that summer, one of my, one of my best friends passed away in a tragic car accident. Less than a year later, while I was sitting in math class at Virginia Tech, 32 of my fellow students were being killed in a building next door. So then for those of you who walk through pain like that, you know that what followed was a year of grief, both, both personally and for us as a community. The year after that, my wife, who I married immediately after graduation, was admitted to a hospital as a last-ditch effort to save her life from an eating disorder. And she spent several months there, including over our first anniversary. So how many times do you think I cried out to God in those years? Look, I didn't know which way was up. All I could see were the storms around me, the waves. I didn't know where to turn. 
And, you know, I didn't know it then. But God was, he was being faithful. I didn't know that he teaches us how to pray when we don't know how to pray. Places like Psalm 25, which has become more meaningful to me recently, says, turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. Relieve the troubles of my heart and free me from my anguish. Look on my affliction and my distress and take away my sins. And I didn't know it then, but God also has promises for us when we find ourselves in these circumstances. Promises like the ones found in Isaiah 43, which says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. So even as God was powering me through those years, I didn't realize that I could be externally powered. I didn't realize that I was being externally powered. And that's okay. You might be there today. I didn't know that what was getting me through those days wasn't me, but Christ in me. What trials do is they teach us to run to the Father's bedside in the middle of the night. They teach us to be externally powered. Christ taught us to run to the Father's bedside in the middle of the night. In Hebrews 5, it says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. So don't think for a moment that Jesus doesn't get your pain. He gets it. He was a man of sorrows. Rejected, publicly shamed, falsely accused, abandoned by those he loved, beaten, stripped naked, pierced, and something none of us who are believers will ever experience, being forsaken by the Father. Again, Hebrews 5 says, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And then he died. God had the power to remove his suffering, and he didn't. Why? The skeptic says, because God is cruel. The cynic says, because God is distant. And the modern man says, because God is dead. But Paul says, when he considers his own unceasing anguish, that he thinks about it like this. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And don't think for a second that his trials were either light or momentary. They were hard, and they were lifelong. But he holds out a set of scales. And he says on one side is the cost, and on the other side is the hope. If your hope is in this life, to be in control, or to be comfortable, or to be pain-free, or to be risk-free, then your trials will never be worth it. Because I can tell you, if you haven't figured it out, affliction is not the road to comfort. That's not where it leads. Not in this life. When our hope is only in the now, when our hope is only in the present, and this can be all of us at times. You may find yourself wondering why everybody else is living the good life while you're stuck in your suffering. Or you may feel like life is just passing you by or that something has been stolen from you. That's what happens when your hope is in the now. You know that every year, Pennsylvanians spend $5 billion on lottery tickets. Where do you think their hope is? 
But when we put eternal glory on the hope side, yeah. Those painful trials, they can seem light, and compared to that, they will seem momentary. Because you're weighing it against something that has eternal value. Hebrews 12 says, For the joy set before him, talking of Jesus, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Now look, the pain of the cross wasn't the joy. I hope you can see that without any more explanation, but let me just say, if it was joy, he wouldn't have asked the Father that the cup would pass from him. The joy was further out. And church, our joy, to have joy, to consider these things joy, we need to be looking further out. We pray in the present, but we hope, we hope in the future. And what's out there? Again, it says, Jesus cried out to the one who was able to save him from death. And then he died. And then he was raised. That's glory. That's glory. Not the avoidance of pain, not the avoidance of death, but victory over it. And glory for us is being transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ in every way, both both in his death and also in his resurrection. That's what we proclaim through baptism. This is why baptism is important for every believer because this is the essence of the Christian life. Life from death. That's the testimony of Jesus Christ. Which is why James says in verse 12, he says, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Paul says, we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And Peter says, in all of this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the tested and proven genuineness of your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So when he returns and we're all gathered around the throne... I think that part of the praise and the glory is going to be reveling in all of what God has done. A trading of stories, right? So we know that when Jesus tells his story, he's kind of got a trump card on all of us, right? Like conquered sin, conquered death, conquered Satan. He's going to have a lot to say. But we will be able to participate in this with a testimony of what God has done for us. And do you know which one's going to be the most glorious? when we talk about how God was faithful to us in our darkest days, how he held us fast, even when we couldn't see it. You see, we're not just gonna see his glory, we're gonna be his glory. And that is completeness. That will be pure joy. So let me move towards uh, wrapping this up with a few closing thoughts. There's no hope in suffering apart from God who can bring death, bring life from death. There's no, there's no other hope out there. Someone may, try, someone may try to convince you that your trial the circumstance that you find yourself in that's afflicting so much pain or that some of the things that we see in the world, the devastation that we're seeing over in Turkey right now is evidence that God does not exist or that if he does, that he's not who he says he is. But part of our hope is that even in this tragic, difficult, 
pain-filled, fallen world, that one day, all of it will magnify the justice and mercy and grace of our God. A school shooter causes great loss. But for my friend Lauren, who lost her life that day, it was a day of great gain. Because she went from walking in the hope of glory to walking in glory. Out of death comes life. That is the power of the Savior in whom we put our faith. Second thought as we close. Let your future hope be a guard against fear. The fear of suffering can be debilitating. I can tell you from the conversations I was having with my family this week that it's human nature When we see suffering around us, one is that we share in the pain of that suffering. But there's a part of us that's filled with fear. What if that happens to me? And that fear can keep us from stepping out in the obedience of faith. That fear in our minds can crowd out any conception of the sovereignty of God. And so if this is something that you struggle with, the fear of suffering or the fear of that circumstance happening to you, let me just give you these words from Vanitha Risner. She says, replacing what if with even if in our mental vocabulary is one of the most liberating exchanges we can make. We trade our irrational fears of an uncertain future for the loving assurance of an unchanging God. We see that even if the very worst happens, God will carry us. Third thought. Know that the fake, trial-free life that some of us project into the world can be one of the greatest obstacles for that world coming to faith in Jesus. How on earth are your friends and family supposed to see the sufficiency of Christ in your life if you project that you're self-sufficient? The world doesn't need your perfection. They need his. And lastly, let your hope in the future bring you joy today. Our hope is in what Christ has done and what Christ is doing and in what Christ is going to do. And this brings us great joy. Maybe you came to church this morning knowing and believing that Jesus is the Son of God. But as you've reflected on how you respond to the circumstances you find yourself in, that maybe you've been putting your trust in something else rather than him. If that's you, I would encourage you this morning to go to the, the Father's bedside in the next song. Entrust yourself to him. Put your faith in him, maybe for the first time. Let's pray, and then we'll worship together. Heavenly Father, the one who cares so much for us and has the power to express that care and that love, make it manifest in this world. Lord, we entrust ourselves to you. There is no one more faithful and trustworthy. Heavenly God, sovereign Father, we praise you even in the midst of the storm, knowing that one day, the tapestry of what you painted in this life will be fully revealed. And we wait for that day in hope. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.
we have the opportunity to respond by expressing our trust, our desire for a greater trust in the Lord in song. So would you stand and join us?
that's the power of Christ. This is the body of Christ. And often it's the body of Christ that God chooses to work through to display his glories to us, to encourage each other. So I just encourage you, be honest with each other about the things that you're walking through. We've got a discussion guide that help facilitate those kind of conversations in your life group. But I'd also say, dads, over lunch, you might not know fully what your kids are walking through. And this guy can create some really good conversation to see what's going on in their hearts. If you're walking through deep waters today and you need, I think, stronger help, we, I'd encourage you to go to our encounter room um, in the back, that side. Uh, there'll be people back there who'd be willing to pray with you. And also know that there are many gifts that Christ gives to the church. Some of them are through counseling or groups that help you deal with grief. If you feel like you need some of that extra gifting in your life, I encourage you to reach out to the office at lefc.net and we'll connect you with people who can really minister to you in the circumstance that you're in. So we set out this morning to see what James had to say about taking joy in the God-glorifying maturity that trials produce. And with that in mind, I just want to close us with another prayer from the book of Psalms. This one comes from Psalm 16. It says, I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Let that instruct your prayers this week. Go in peace. You are dismissed.